Hannah Lucinda Smith is a journalist with the Times of London and the author of Erdogan Rising, The Battle for the Soul of Turkey. This is Hannah Lucinda Smith. I'm Duncan Yammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. All right. I'm here with Hannah Lucinda Smith. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Uh, so you wrote uh, and have written about uh, Turkey and in particular this figure, uh, Erdogan. And you wrote a book called Erdogan Rising. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it has a couple different uh, sort of titles where it's like Erdogan Rising, A Warning to Europe, Erdogan Rising, Battle for the Soul of Turkey. Um, I'm, I'm particularly interested, maybe as a way to start off here, uh, why would this book be a warning to Europe? Like, why do we even care about this guy in the West? Sure. Well, funnily enough, just a couple of hours ago, um, I was talking to one of my contacts in Bosnia. There's just been elections there. Um, and we were talking about something that we've talked about a lot over the past few years, which is how these illiberal uh, figures across Europe kind of learn from each other. Um, and, you know, how particularly in uh, the Bosniak Muslim part of Bosnia, a leader, long-term leader there, Bekarita Begovic, he absolutely, you know, openly looks to Erdogan as a kind of inspiration and as a support and, you know, really kind of employs many of the methods that Erdogan has been honing over the past couple of decades. Also, in Serbia, President Vucic has been in power for nearly 10 years now. Almost, you know, the Erdogan playbook, when you look at um, the reports done by election monitors um, from the OSCE after elections in Serbia, and look at what they have to say about the way that elections are conducted there and the way that elections are conducted in Turkey, it's almost exactly the same. You know, they use phrases like, you know, free but not fair. You know, these are systems, you know, they're not like the old kind of autocracies like Syria or Iraq under Saddam Hussein or even Russia. You know, they're not these systems where you sort of have, you know, goons eyeing you in the ballot box as you drop your vote in or, you know, just outright faked results. You know, there's a veneer of democracy in these places and elections are to some extent free in that you can go and vote for who you want, but the whole apparatus surrounding elections, the whole environment surrounding elections is not free at all. You know, you've got almost total control of the media in these countries by, by either, you know, the state directly or by um, you know, businessmen who are very close to the state. You have, you know, these leaders basically managing to take control of the institutions of state, things like, you know, electoral boards, the court systems, putting their own supporters there so that, you know, they can basically uh, you know, recall election results that they don't like, as Erdogan did in local elections here in Istanbul back in 2019. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is why when the paperback edition came out, um, we went for the title of Warning to Europe. You know, I think it's often very, very tempting, particularly when you live in, in Western Europe, to sort of look at what's happening in the east of the continent and think, well, you know, well, that's there and that can't happen here. Um, but, you know, as, as we found out in Britain, 
you know, we're not immune to populism either. We're not immune to the methods that these guys use. And I think, you know, if we want to educate ourselves and, you know, start thinking, if oppositions want to start thinking ways they can fight like Erdogan, really examining, you know, how he's managed to stay in power for so long, the kind of techniques and tactics that he's used. It, yeah, it is amazing how long he has stayed in power, especially considering at one point in time he was he was banned entirely from from holding political office. Right? I, I mean, um, maybe perhaps a, a sort of like a, a prelude to that. One of the things I want to ask about is the fact that this guy was elected as mayor of Istanbul, which to me feels like the cosmopolitan center of the country. So if he's this uh, authoritarian uh, dude how, how did that happen um i think i think a lot of people don't have an entirely accurate um idea of istanbul this isn't a criticism of you i think this is kind of general it's it's an incredibly complicated city um politically and socially so when you come as a tourist the areas of istanbul that you're going to see are the cosmopolitan relatively liberal right. parts, right? But this is a minority of Istanbul. It's actually you know, the original Istanbul. So Istanbul until the mid 20th century was a city of about a million. Um, and all the uh, neighborhoods were kind of along the Bosphorus. Um, and it was very cosmopolitan still. You know, in the Ottoman era, it was incredibly cosmopolitan. Um, and you know, the, the First World War and, and things that happened after the First World War sort of, uh, you know, really thinned out a lot of its diversity, but it was still a cosmopolitan city. But what happened from the 50s onwards was you had this huge um, internal migration. So, um, you know, migrants coming from Anatolia, from incredibly conservative places in Turkey's interior, also from Black Sea, very conservative region, also from Kurdish regions, which are often very conservative. Um, and coming and swelling Istanbul into this metropolis that it is today. I mean, the official um, population is around 15 million, but we, we all know that it's way more than that. It's probably around 20 million. Um, and the bulk of it is actually very conservative. Um, you know, it's made up of districts which were kind of tacked on as these migrants arrived. You know, they're known as Gecikondo in Turkish, which means built in the night. Um, and then they became formalized and become part of the city. And that's how Istanbul grows. Um, so, you know, Erdogan actually was the kind of, I mean, he's of that population himself. His family were Black Sea migrants who came to Istanbul. He was born in Istanbul, but, you know, very much feeling part of that kind of, you know, being the outsider in Istanbul. You know, on the one hand, you have what they call the original Istanbulus who are, you know, more liberal and have this quite high-class lifestyle. And on the other hand, these migrants who've come from other places who are far more conservative, far poorer, kind of kept out both of the social life of the city, but also of the politics of the city. And the city had been pretty horrifically run, actually, by, by the kind of successive, um, you know, more, more secularist administrations. You know, rubbish was mounting up and the public transport system was terrible. And so Erdogan was not only, when he was elected in 94, he was not only, you know, seen as a sort of, you know, voice of this disenfranchised majority, but also as somebody who was going to, 
you know, really bring change to the city. And initially he did. Um, you know, he he went out into these outlying districts and, you know, held meetings with people and, you know, really sort of tried to modernise the city. But of course, you know, at heart, he, he is an Islamist. I mean, I, I met somebody recently, um, you know, an American politician who'd met him you know, back in 1994. And what they said was, you know, to them it was obvious even then that he was, he was this kind of, you know, Islamist at heart, but because of the relatively weak position he was in at the start, had to sort of, you know, uh, make overtures to the rest of the country. You know, he couldn't start off by being an out-and-out Islamist um, in the in the way that he is now, or an out and out populist in the way that he is now, he he knew that he was in quite a weak position, and that was you know demonstrated when you, when you mentioned that at first that he he was banned from office because he he read a poem, he read an Islamist poem in 1997 at a rally while he was mayor of Istanbul, and he was put in prison for it. He was accused of inciting religious hatred. Was still almost entirely dominated by you know the old order by the secularists, um, and so you know that that's a really good demonstration of how you know even though he was sort of electorally strong, he was institutionally weak at the start. It, yeah, and one of the things about that poem that he recited, like I read a, a translation of it, and th that's something that of course like no America, I mean just because of, uh, I guess, different legal system, but no American politician, American politicians say things way more inciting than that poem all the time. I mean, in my opinion, do I just not have the proper context here? Like what was so bad about reciting that poem? I think, I, I mean, you know, in, in the US, your freedom of speech is enshrined by the constitution, right? Um, there is no such thing in the Turkish constitution. And in fact, there are, um, you know, clauses in, in Turkish legal code where, you know, insulting Turkishness is a crime, insulting head of state is a crime. And it's just a, also on top of that, you've got a very different history and you've got a very different culture. So, you know, if we look at the, the history of Turkey first, you know, this is a, state a country which had a really traumatic birth it'd be 100 years ago next year it's going to be the centenary of the Turkish Republic in 2023 you know it was built in the ashes of the Ottoman Empire this multicultural empire which was then turned into you know uh, well <laughs> the idea was a homogenous nation state by by Kemal Atatürk the you know, founder of the Turkish Republic the first president you know, still the guy who's you know, worshipped by many Turks. You know, his idea of Turkishness was, you know, pretty, you know, monocultural, monolinguistic. Um, but also within that, you know, what Ataturk wanted to do was to make Turkey a kind of secular modern nation state. He wanted to banish Islam from the public sphere. And this has, you know, really kind of informed one of the major struggles at the heart of the Turkish national story. Um, you know, I think, you know, when we look at, you know, the people in Britain or in the US who sort of claim that, you know, 
Islamism is on the rise in our societies and, you know, in, in X number of years time, they're going to be the majority. And we look at it and we know this is ridiculous, right? We know that, you know, in our, in our societies, there is a dominant culture and we're multicultural societies, but overall there is dominant culture. And there's no threat to that, actually, as much as, you know, conspiracy theorists and extreme right-wingers would like to tell us there is, you know, we know there isn't. Um, but in Turkey, there genuinely is, you know, there's genuinely this threat of, you know, Turkey being, um, you know, overtaken by Islamist forces. It's only got to look at its neighborhood. I mean, look what happened in Syria, what happens in Iraq. You know, it, this is not a kind of, you know, idle or, or crazy threat in Turkey. It's something very real. It feels very real. So when you have this guy who's become the first Islamist mayor of Istanbul suddenly going and reading this really, it's both nakedly Islamist and nakedly nationalist. It's sort of merging the two. So what it's doing is kind of saying, well, this is our idea of Turkish nationalism. Like you may have your ideas about the Turkish nation being secular and being Western looking, but this is our idea. So it was you know, genuinely seen as a threat. Um, and, you know, I think <laughs> there are some hardcore secularists in Turkey who will say, well, you know, look, we were right. Look what's happened now. Now Erdogan feels secure in his position and has managed to capture the institutions of state to a large degree. And look what he's doing, you know, massively expanding religious education massively expanding mosque building, trying to crack down, I have to say, unsuccessfully on, you know, alcohol sales and things like that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's something that you can't really look at from, um, from a Western context. You have to really kind of ground yourself in the Turkish history and in the Turkish national psyche. Yeah, and you mentioned Ataturk in there, and that was the weird thing when I was there, and people would basically tell me, that this, okay, this guy's like the founder of the country, and also, if you're a big fan of him, you're probably against Erdogan, which feels like, uh, again, I'm, I'm saying this from a Western context, but it feels like an American politician being pit against George Washington. Like, how is that even possible? How could a guy be successful yeah. as a politician? there i mean again i think it comes back to this kind of you know major struggle at the, the heart of the turkish idea which is that you know when ataturk came in and, and secularized the state he did so you know by force pretty brutal force actually um a, a bit of a, a bit diversion here but i think it's it's a really interesting thing to think about i have a turkish journalist friend who recently went to saudi arabia um, it was her first time there. And, you know, obviously we're talking a lot about Mohammed bin Salman these days, you know, the crown prince and the things that he's doing, but, you know, still, you know, trying to sort of secularise and liberalise his country, but still clearly an absolute despot and, you know, chopping up or having Jamal Khashoggi chopped up in the, in the consulate here in Istanbul. But apparently a, a Saudi journalist said to her, in a hundred years time, we're going to be looking at MBS as Saudi Arabia's Ataturk. And I think that's, it's a really interesting way to look at it because I think, you know, had if we went back in time a hundred years and looked at 
what Ataturk was doing through modern eyes, we'd, we'd find it pretty despotic. You know, he literally hanged people for carrying on wearing the furs. Um, you know, you know, you know, conducted really brutal campaigns against the Kurds as a way to try and to bring them into this Turkish national idea. And yet, a hundred years on, he's seen by many Turks as you know this figure who a saved Turkey from the kind of you know the the clutches of other European powers at the end of the First World War, but also turned Turkey into into the state it is today compared to you know many of the neighbouring states again Syria Iraq um, you're looking at the the kind of chaos that they're in um, and the, the kind of you know religious um, you know conservatism that is so prevalent in those places, but on the other hand you know there are people who we say, well, you know, we don't like what Assetto did. You know, he never managed to win the hearts and minds of people with the secularizing project. You know, he won an elite, that's for sure, and he won a certain part of the population um, who did want to be westward-looking and have a secular lifestyle, but it's never been the majority. Um, so, you know, and again, you know, insulting Ataturk is still a crime in Turkey. You know, prosecuted less and less these days, but you know, so there's a huge amount of the country for whom, you know, seeing Erdogan rise to power and, you know, even Erdogan will never out and out insult Ataturk. It would be a step too far even for him. But, you know, it's very, very clear that, you know, he doesn't particularly like the guy and definitely doesn't like a lot of things that he did. So, you know, for this part of the country, this conservative part of the country, having somebody like Erdogan come in, who's, you know, giving voice to this thing that they've kept inside them for so long is, you know, a very, very powerful thing. Yeah, and on that note, like when people talk about populism, and I do want to get a little bit deeper into what that term means in this context, but when people talk about that, it seems like the the idea of an outsider politician speaking for the voiceless, that, that can really only find, that, that sort of politician can only grow where there is fertile ground for it. Like, in other words, it, it it feels like maybe, uh, or do you feel like maybe a guy like Erdogan was almost not necessarily inevitable, but made much more likely by the way that the, the country had been managed up to that point? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, I moved here 10 years ago, and one of the things that I first noticed was how polarized Turkey was. Um, I remember thinking also how much everybody talks about politics all the time, politicised and polarised. And I'm thinking, oh, well, thank God Britain's not like that. And then look what happened three years later, right? And then look what happened in America. I think, you know, the the foundation that these guys use um, is polarisation. Um, and here's the thing about populism. It relies as much on unpopularism as it does on I think I'm making loads of but you know you look at Erdogan or you look at Trump or you look at you know Boris Johnson when it came to the Brexit uh, referendum campaign they're not just kind of um, you know spreading the good word and trying to attract people to them in a positive way what they're also doing is showing their supporters, telling their supporters, there's an enemy there. There's part of this country that don't like you 
and they don't want you to progress and they don't want the country to progress and we have to fight against them. That's the thing they have in common. And you can only do that when you have a polarised society, when you have a society that's stopped talking to each other, that started, you know, dehumanising each other, you stop trying to understand each other. And, you know, I think that's another of the kind of lessons that, um, you know, in the West we really need to be taking from Turkey and other countries in this region. And, and on the the question of like populism, like Bernie Sanders, for instance, is accused of being a populist. And I support a lot of what Sanders promotes. And I, I wonder sometimes if this word populism sometimes becomes a way of almost uh, negating anyone who, who might speak for the, the quote unquote voiceless. Yeah, um, that's a good question. And I, I think it's misused in another way. I, I don't know so much. I'm not such an expert on US politics. You have to excuse me on that. I'm more, no worries, yeah. uh, I'm more knowledgeable about Europe. But I think um, the way that it's misused most in Europe is that people think that it always means right wing populism, which I don't think is, is necessarily the case. I mean, again, looking at Britain, I would class Corbyn as a populist. Um, yes, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, again, you know, really sort of, you know, making making a lot of these kind of social divisions and, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not explaining myself very well here. Um, yeah, you're editing this, right? No, no, no. Um, I, I'm just curious if, like, you think there's any, is populism like a dirty word, in other words? always I think it has I think it has become it has become a dirty word um you know I think yeah the the problem is you know as I was saying before I think my definition of populism is when it's got the counterbalance to it where you 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 rely on people who hate you as much as on people who love you when your kind of political strategy is divide and rule rather than trying to unite. Um, so that's why, you know, I say, you know, it's usually used for right-wingers. I mean, it, it generally does tend to be a more right-wing phenomenon, but there are there are the left-wing examples. And I, I would, you know, say that, you know, Corbyn's caucus in the Labour Party is, is one of them, you know, rather than, you know, trying to build sort of broad church party, you know, really um you know focusing on a very very narrow part of the party and saying the others as you know sort of enemies of the project and etc etc you know I, I think you know that for me is what makes you a populist rather than just trying to be popular which is i, I guess what uh, yeah. politicians want to do ultimately because you've got to you got to do that in order to win elections yeah fair enough that that question of dividing people on purpose is an interesting one in the light of Erdogan because after, uh, you know, going back to when he is um, he is not allowed to run for office after reciting this poem, and he 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 changes parties, right? I mean, uh, his it, his party was banned or, or something like that. What was the deal? Yeah, yeah. So. At the point where Erdogan was mayor of Istanbul, he was in the Refa Partisi. Um, and they were shut down in 1997. There was um, a coup d'etat, what they call the, the postmodern coup. 
So the army basically, you know, issued a memorandum and the government stepped down. It was the fourth coup of the Turkish Republic. Um, and all the political parties were dissolved. It's always happened after a successful coup. Um, but then what would also happen after <laughs> after every coup was the party would be dissolved and then they would basically sort of reform with a new, new name. Um, now that didn't exactly happen this time. What happened was there was a group within the Refa Partisi of sort of uh, more European looking, more technocratic figures who decided to break away and form a new party. And they decided to bring Erdogan on board because, you know, even though he'd been sent to prison and was therefore banned from, you know, holding political office, it had massively boosted his profile. Um, partly because he, he played it very smartly. He was working with some very good spin doctors. Um, and they you know, managed to turn him into this kind of, you know, free speech figure, free speech martyr. And the founders of this new party, the AKP, decided that, you know, Erdogan would be, you know, a huge uh, you know, boon for them to bring on board. So that's what they did. Um, so initially, when they won their first elections in November 2002, and initially Erdogan wasn't able to take any kind of office. So it was Abdullah Gül, um, one of the founders who became prime minister. Um, but actually, then it was the opposition bloc in the parliament who basically allowed a, a, a law change to go through, which then allowed Erdogan to become prime minister in, in March 2003, so, so five months later. Um, and, you know, I, I've interviewed Abdullah Gul about this and said, you know, well, how did you feel when, you know, you've done five months as prime minister and then you stepped aside for Erdogan? Why? And he said, well, you know, Erdogan's popularity was higher. You know, it was the right thing to do, um, which I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, Erdogan was clearly the strongest personality and, and definitely the most charismatic personality in this party of quite grey men and quite weak men um, who, yeah, just sort of <laughs> willingly stepped aside and allowed him to rise to the front. That is, that is the part that is so incredible to me, is that this person who's not Erdogan gets elected prime minister. I mean, the, the party wins elections. And then he's like, oh, here, just have, have the keys to the castle. Like, what? <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. Um, it's, it is incredible. I mean, I think, again, you have to really understand, um, you know, the Turkish political culture and the appeal of strong, charismatic leaders, generally men, not always, but generally men in this country. And Erdogan is charismatic. It's something that's quite difficult to translate, I think. Um, you know, when you sort of directly translate what he says on stage to English, it sounds ridiculous. And maybe he looks ridiculous. But, you know, when you're there, and I've been to a lot of his rallies over the years, he's incredibly, incredibly charismatic. In a way that, you know, the other people... In that party at the beginning, Abdullah Gul, Ahmed Davutoglu, um, yeah, just 
weren't. I mean, they're, they're capable guys, they're technocratic, they're quite liberal in their ideas. I mean, they're, you know, pious Muslims, but, you know, very pro-EU. Um, you know, Abdullah Gul had worked for the Islamic Investment Bank um, before he went into politics. You're very, very capable men, but not, not particularly scintillating company, I have to say. Um, and, you know, whereas Erdogan, he was a political rock star. You know, to some people, he still is. I mean, he's he's lost it quite a bit. I mean, clearly now he's, what, 68 years old. But, you know, still, even now, there are very few people who can match him for charisma. I mean, it's only in the past few years that we've had figures come up people like Ekrem Mamolu, the, the Istanbul mayor from the opposition party, who's got the same kind of charisma. I mean, when I go to see Imamolu, you know, talk or open something in Istanbul, I see the same kind of um, enthusiasm for him as I do at Erdogan rallies for Erdogan. Um, but until now, I mean, it's been you know, pretty poor pickings. Um, either within the government or within the opposition for, for figures who can match his charisma. So is that like a huge part of the reason why that he has remained in power, just because the there haven't been as many like figures who could feasibly challenge him? I mean, it seems like there's a, a hunger for that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's in when I mean, we look at the polls, <clears throat> obviously the main um, the main problem in Turkey is the economy, high inflation, officially is eighty percent, nearly two hundred percent annually. Um, you know, people are really suffering, and people are desperate for change. But what the polls are showing is that there's an awful number of um, disgruntled voters leaving the AKP, but they're not going to the opposition. They're not convinced by the opposition still. Um, now, with older voters, there will still be kind of identity politics reasons for that. So when I speak with, you know, conservative Turkish women who are you know, 40 years old and older, who still remember an era where if you wore the headscarf, you weren't allowed to go to university, you weren't allowed to work in the public sector. You know, they, they still talk about those things uh, with a very sort of, you know, visceral sense that if the opposition comes back to power, that's how it's going to be again. But the younger generation is just not part of their thinking. It's, it's history to them. Um, so, yeah, for older voters, there's identity issues. But for younger voters, I mean, there's... I think there's a general malaise um, about politics overall, which I think is not an exclusively Turkish thing. Um, you know, the, the generation have you know spent you know some of their really formative years just being curtailed by pandemic and restrictions, and you know not going out of the world in the way that you know we might have, and sort of forming their you know political ideas and personalities. You know, not being on campus at university, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's still by no means a sure thing when it comes to the elections next year. The polls are showing that Erdogan's in the shakiest position ever. You know, his personal approving ratings are sort of down below 40%, and um, his 
party, you know, even below that. But the opposition still does have this problem of who they're going to put up. It's likely to be a guy called Kamal Kalish Sarolu, who's been the leader of the main opposition party for over a decade. Um, the idea being that he would be a sort of, you know, technocrat bridging figure who would be able to, you know, lead Turkey in a very calm and measured technocratic way to get it out of this crisis. Um, but, you know, also Erdogan's very, very skilled at using Turkey's cleavages. So one thing that he's done repeatedly is drive a wedge between the kind of mainstream mainstream opposition and, and the Kurdish part of the opposition by launching these military operations against the Kurdish forces in Syria. This really backs the mainstream opposition into a corner because they both options have bad results. If they condemn the operation, then they keep the Kurds on side, but they lose the support of nationalists. And there are many secular nationalists. And if they support the operation, then they lose the support of the Kurds. Now, the Kurds are not yet in the main opposition coalition. It's something called a table of six. Um, so it's six um, parties, which is sort of secular nationalists. There's also um, you know, a couple of breakaway parties formed by people who've left the AKP. But the main Kurdish party is outside of this at the moment. Now, what happened in Istanbul in 2019, what helped um, the opposition candidate Imamol to victory was that the, the HDP, the Kurdish party, withdrew their candidate. Um, so, you know, the, the Kurds can be a deciding block here, but everyone's really, really skilled at, you know, exploiting that cleavage in, in, in Turkish society and political thinking. Um, and he's trying to do it again, and he's been talking about launching another military operation in Syria against the Kurds. And it's, it's very obvious, you know, there's no security rationale for this at all, none. The only reason for it would, would be, you know, electoral benefits for him. Yeah, that that sort of divide and rule where I, I had heard something similar of while I was there, like there are these um, graffitis in Istanbul where it's like, uh, it says something like, mommy save us or something like that uh which uh i think it's m the morale oxener I, I don't know if that's who it's referring to but basically i i had heard that she was okay yeah yeah, yeah. um she was at one point considered like ooh, th this person could be like uh you know a, a figure to, to challenge him and then said something like as she was gaining steam uh in like an attempt to sort of like quote unquote, reach out to the more conservative elements of the country, he said something like, oh, you know, I, I wouldn't want my son to be gay or something like that, and, or some, something yeah. along those lines. And then people were like, it didn't endear her to any Erdogan supporters, and it kind of hurt her among people who liked her. So is that part of, is there just um, something that happens in the States a lot? Is that, say, the Republican Party has like, their demographic is basically like, uh, white men in particular. And so it's a lot easier to keep that coalition together than for the opposition, which has like a bunch of people from a bunch of different places. Is, is that kind of a similar phenomenon going on in Turkey? Um, again, I think, you know, that the context is so different. I mean, there's far bigger problems with action there. Um, 
you know, when it comes to sort of saying things about, you know, LGBT rights here, the part of the population that cares about that is so small that, you know, electorally, you know, the, the HDP, the main Kurdish party was the first and still, I think, I think the only party to include LGBT rights in their manifesto. I mean, you know, you come again, if you come to Istanbul as a tourist and you hang out in some of the sort of more liberal districts, you might see some, you know, rainbow flags and cafes and think, oh, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, movement here, an LGBT rights movement. But honestly, it, it's very, very weak. Um, you know, that's not taking away from the activists who are, who are really brave and the people who do try and have a pride every year. And, but, um, you know, the bigger problem with Action Air is, I mean, she she comes from this ultra-nationalist background. She was an interior minister in the 90s when horrible, horrible things were being made out against the Kurds in the East. Um, so basically her party, the party, is, is a breakaway from the MHP, the main, um, you know, far-right party, which is in coalition with, um, with Erdogan's party, she didn't break away from them because they're horrifically far right. She broke away from them because she you know, disagreed with them getting so close to Erdogan. Um, but you know, in this in this table of six that the opposition has, um, you know, there are all sort of you know parts of the political spectrum represented. So you've got the kind of um, the main opposition party, the CHP. That's you know uh, broadly social democrats, secularists. It's Ataturk's party. You've got the party sort of representing the kind of breakaway of the nationalists. And, that, and then, you know, that's useful because they've attracted a lot of, you know, people from the MHP. The MHP's votership has shrunk to almost nothing and the E party is taking them. Um, what else do you have? You have a party led by Ahmed Davutoglu, who was, uh, used to be in Erdogan's government. Um, that's sort of, you know, the idea is that will interact disenfranchised Islamist, more Islamist people. Um, so you've got all these kind of parts represented. But, you know, I, I think to really understand Turkey, you sort of have to stop thinking in, um, you know, the Western paradigm of liberal or liberal, because honestly, like, even the opposition parties are pretty right wing and the liberal by, certainly by European standards, maybe not by American standards. Um, and yeah, I mean, the the same issues are not going to sort of raise the same, you know, emotions. Um, women's rights is is certainly an issue here. Um, and it's one that, you know, the, the mainstream opposition is quite concerned about in Istanbul. Um, but yeah, across the country, the real things that people you know, get annoyed about or excited about our security issues, you know, the, the Kurdish issue, the, the conflict with the PKK uh, and the economy, you know, these, these are the things that people really care about. Interesting. So one of the other sort of, I don't know if this is like a form the opposition took, but the 2016 coup attempt against Erdogan, what was... I mean, first off, what what motivated people in the military to take that step? It seems like Turkey's had a few coups under its belt in the past, so this is not entirely out of character, but it seems like a, a big thing regardless. 
Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a coup like any other previous coup. I mean, it was it was a part of the military rather than the kind of whole military or rather than the, the whole top brass of the military. Um, you know, uh, we're very, very limited in how far we can dig into this um, as journalists, and particularly Turkish journalists are very, very constrained. But, you know, it does, it does seem that it was, um, you know, spearheaded by this group called the Gulenists, um, which is a kind of, how do I describe it? It's a, it's a religious cult. It's got similarities to the Freemasons, I guess, in the way that they, you know, they run networks of schools and um, university dormitories and basically try to get very highly educated people on side and then do some mutual back scratching in terms of business and try and get their people into the into high positions in the state and that's what they've been doing for a really long time and you know Erdogan knew about this everybody knew about this and they were really useful to Erdogan in the early years of the AKP government um, but at some point they fell out Erdogan started seeing the Gulenists threat um, the the kind of operations against Gulenists police operations and state operations started actually in late 2013. So the private schools were shut down. A lot of Gulenist businessmen fled the country. And then this was kind of what happened in 2016 was kind of last gasp, I guess, um, of the Gulenists. But, you know, Erdogan's massively used it to his advantage. You know, there's one, one of the kind of theories put about by a lot of sensible people is that actually the intelligence services knew that this coup was going to unfold and, and they let it happen so that it would be a pretext for the government to then launch this huge crackdown that's that's followed. Um, you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people arrested, removed from their jobs. Um, and it's still going on. You know, there are still sort of roundups and operations, particularly in the military um, and in the police, almost every week. Um, so it's really been the vehicle by which Erdogan's managed to, you know, fully take control of the state. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is it is very murky. It was a very, you know, if you look at, you know, coups in the past, you know, Turkish army had done a lot of them. It got quite good at them. You know, usually it, when a coup unfolds, it's sort of, you know, one in the morning when everyone's in bed and then you get up and it's a fait accompli. Like, you know, the soldiers on the streets, They've taken over the television stations and they've arrested the prime minister and the president and you know it's done dusted this this started at like nine o'clock on friday night when everybody was out on the streets of istanbul um and then just fell apart very very quickly um you know first of all the, the head of the land forces came to television when you know we have nothing to do with this and then it became very clear that it was falling apart um so yeah i mean the, the coup in itself was not the kind of um, the most, uh, certainly the most dramatic thing, but, you know, in terms of the effect on the country, what's unfolded afterwards, the, the crackdown and the purge of the state has been, you know, far longer lasting, um, far more um, influential in, in you know, the way that the country has ended up now. And, and it's going to be really hard to reverse. You know, the state is now so stuffed full of Erdogan's people. Courts, uh, the army, 
some extent, to a certain extent, the education system, you know, it's just, it's going to be really, really difficult to put back when, when this era ends. Yeah, and, and it seems, it seems like this was just like poorly executed, like, and not only like the people who were cracked down upon, like, um, my, my girlfriend at the time, her brother-in-law was just some like random dude in the military, not like high level whatsoever, but apparently right. like his supervisor was uh, on some level, like gave, gave a green light for this, for this coup to go forward. Um, or, or was some kind of participant in it and sort of blamed him as like a fall guy. And now he's just randomly in jail and yeah. family's trying to like leave the country. But this person yeah. was not like had no political intentions whatsoever. Um, is that, yeah. is that relatively comp? Like when you talk about hundreds of thousands of people in prison, like how many of those are actually serious threat to Erdogan and his party? It is, this is such a common story. I've interviewed family after family. I, I spent quite a long time focusing on military families um, and focusing particularly on cadets who've ended up with, you know, full life sentences. It, I've heard this story again and again and again. Here's the thing, like, it's really, really difficult to know who was complicit in some way and who was not, but that's the whole point, right? Like, what this kind of purge does is... A, it makes everybody scared, am I going to be next? And also it makes everybody look at their neighbours, think, oh, did they have something to do with it? I mean, that that effect is kind of wearing off now. I mean, I remember the first couple of years after the coup and there was such visceral anger against goodness because it was it was a really bloody night. It was so destructive. It was it just, it was awful, really, really traumatic. And people were really, really angry at the goodness. And, you know, they'd known for a long time, for, you know, for years and decades, that the goodness has been sort of wielding this very undemocratic power in Turkey. Um, but, uh, you know, the, interestingly, in, in more recent years, the crackdown's now so wide, and there are so many people who, you know, clearly had nothing to do with it, that I think almost everybody in Turkey at this point must know somebody who's been put in prison or lost their job or had to leave the country. And now, you know, not publicly, of course, but privately, people are saying, like, yeah, like, we have questions. Like, you know, if not about the coup, then certainly about the crackdown. We know that all these people can't be guilty. And, you know, if, if we're such a strong country now, why are, the, you know, why are these roundups still going on? So, yeah, I think, you know, for the first couple of years, it was very, very effective in, again, you know, dividing the society and really, you know, casting this pall of fear. Um, people are so scared to talk. Um, yeah, it's it very effective. And of course, that was the point where, that was the period where Erdogan, you know, consolidated his power. He, you know, held the referendum, managed to change the constitution, uh, you know, and following that, you know, basically sort of moved at warp speed to take over the institutions. It, yeah, this referendum when, when they move from a parliamentary to presidential system, like why is that significant? Um, Duncan, just before I answer, I'm yes. I'm gonna have to go at in like ten minutes because I've got another call today. Okay, um, so no worries. I, I I don't know, maybe like it's the like one uh, one question that you wanna. Oh, okay. Yes. Um. Well, actually, I, I was I was kind of curious uh, about your history in this country, like the fact that. 
it seems like it's getting, I don't know, maybe harder to, to conduct journalism in the country. You went there, or you went there originally as like a freelance war correspondent. And um, I, what I'm about to say, I say with all the respect in the world, but like, who the fuck does that? <laughs> it's like, yeah, that sounds like a fun time. So, <laughs> like, what? Uh, what? More people, <laughs> more people than you think. <laughs> it's a surprising oh, yeah. number of people who do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's. Um, I, I don't know how to explain it. I, when I look back at the things that I did, you know, in Syria now, I you know, feel sick in terror at myself. Um, yeah. Um, what was your question? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, like, what what motivated you to? I, I'm curious about the 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 Syria bit, but I guess what motivated you to like stay at all? Like, you're you're originally from the UK, right? I mean, I, I yeah. your accent, um, etc. Yeah, I mean, I. When I came originally, yeah, A, it was to cover Syria, not Turkey, and B, I was going to stay for four weeks and then leave again. Um, but, you know, it's, it was one of those things where I was really lucky in arriving in a place at exactly the time that it got really interesting and became really um, in demand for editors. I mean, I I don't know about the American press, but... In the British press, Turkey is important. You know, it's we have you know really strong links with Turkey. There's a lot of Turks who live in Britain. Obviously, we have you know the Cyprus connection. Um, but for a long time, you know, I hadn't really sort of made the news pages very much. And then all of a sudden, I arrived in February 2013 to cover Syria. And then May 2013, the Gezi Park protest kicked off, and all of a sudden editors in London were like, well, hang on, wasn't Turkey meant to be the model for Islamic democracy? So why on earth is Erdogan sending the police to tear gas these protesters in Istanbul? Um, and it, you know, that was the kind of starting point of just a really tumultuous and interesting period in Turkey. You know, we went from that very quickly into you know, a wave of terror attacks, which were horrific. Um, so then, you know, ISIS, you know, Turkey being criticized for becoming part of this jihadi highway into Syria. Then obviously the coup, then the referendum. It, you know, it just, it, there was never a reason for me to leave. And there's, you know, there's still not. I, I really lucked out. I, you know, I think journalists spend a lot of their time, you know, trying to, divine where the next big story is going to be or especially you know if you like I did have an ambition to be a foreign correspondent trying to work out what's the place where I should go where things are happening but it's not already you know overrun with staff correspondents and hundreds of other freelancers um and I just happened to land in Turkey at a time when there just weren't many journalists here and managed to find a niche. Um, so yeah, I was, I was, that was luck rather than my divination skills. Well, um, I, I know you got another call to go, uh, to go on, but um, 
so this is not another question, but just my own uh, feelings. I spent like a few months in Turkey, a lot of that in Istanbul, but a lot of in other parts of the country as well. And what you mentioned a few times here is like a tourist, like things like look very sunny. And that would be constantly like the thing that Turkish people would say to me. I'd be like, oh, I love your country. They're like, yeah, of course you love it because you get to fucking leave whatever you want. Um, but yeah, right. that that's my overwhelming feeling uh, when I compare my experiences of the country along with the political experience, like the, the politics there and the experience of people living there is like, man, this country could be so awesome. It, right. it figured out some of its politics. Like it could be yeah. so cool. Um, and it is awesome and cool. It, and like, yeah, you know, yeah. there are reasons I, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not devoted enough to my job to spend a decade living in a place that's terrible. It's a great <laughs> country. Yeah. It is. I mean, yeah. people fall in love with it. Um, and I, it's funny, I always see this kind of, process that, <laughs> that new arrivals go through you know they arrive and say like oh isn't it wonderful the people are so friendly and, oh, and everything's wonderful and then they learn a bit of the, its politics and maybe learn a bit of the language and start reading the newspapers and understanding what politicians and people are saying and like oh okay there is this undercurrent of you know ultra nationalism and you know problematic relationship with its history and things that need to be worked out. But, you know, like I said at the, at the start, this is a really young country that had a very traumatic birth. I think to, you know, to judge it through Western eyes is, is a mistake. Mm. Um, but, I, you know, I, I do hope, you know, I, I, I love this country. I have such deep love for it and such deep love for Turkish people. And, you know, it, it does it's pain me to see it being dragged into the gutter by its politics. But, I, you know, I stay here also because I do have hope. You know, I'm not I'm not the kind of journalist who loves a misery beat. You know, that's why I couldn't, you know, stay in the Middle East my whole career. You know, I, the thing that I love about Turkey, I do see a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I, I do think that this country can pull itself out of, of the kind of, um, you know, political mess it's in currently. Well, I think that's a positive note to end it on. Uh, Hannah, thank you very much for your time. Uh, love your book. Um, is there anywhere uh, if people want to, you know, read more of your work or articles, etc., they can go to check you out? Yeah, so I've actually just released a second book, um, which is I've co-written it with an Afghan lady called Zarifa Gafari. Uh, the book's called Zarifa, and it's about her life and about her work as a mayor in Afghanistan and as a women's rights activist. Um, but for stuff on Turkey, so I'm a correspondent with the Times of London and also with Monocle magazine. So um, both those places, and then I also write occasionally for Wired, um, The Atlantic, Spectator, the magazines as well. Um, but yeah, if you if you look on my Twitter page, which at Hannah Lucy, I generally post everything there. Nice. All right, uh, Hannah, thanks so much for your time and have a good evening where you are. Thank you so much. Enjoy your day. All right, bye-bye. Take care, bye-bye. Thank you to Hannah Lucinda Smith and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.